Okay. So what I was wondering if she would say, the reason why I was asking about it, um, what you're going to see tonight is uh, Romans 9 is what we're going to be in tonight. And why I asked about her house, because the favorite parts of the house, the rooms, the things, uh, the areas, the environments, everything that you like about your house is kind of like Romans 8. All the beautiful things of Romans 8, right? We walked through Romans 8 for the last like, four weeks. And we talked about all of the great things that Romans 8 offers us as believers. That's kind of like the house. Now, a house has to have something more important than the rooms. Foundations. Ah, yes, walls are important. But even before the walls, a foundation. Every single one of your homes has a foundation. Whether it's a, a cement pad or it's on a basement or whatever it is, there's a foundation. There's a foundation to all of your homes. Okay? So, what we're going to look at tonight in Romans 9 is that foundation. Because here's the truth without a foundation, your house will crumble. It needs a foundation. Even with all of the really nice things about your house, all the things you love about your house, all those are true and great, but they crumble without a foundation. And your foundation tonight, and the foundation that Paul is laying for believers and for the Jewish people, which we're going to look at tonight, Jew and Gentile, is Romans 9, 10, 11. Now I'm going to tell you up front that these three chapters, I guarantee if you talk to a lot of believers, they could tell you a lot about chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. And possibly even one through five, which we've covered already. Nine, ten, and eleven, people don't want to talk about. They just pass over. It's that weird section God talks about the Jewish people and somehow the Gentiles and the Jews get mixed and their sovereignty and there's election. It's just a lot of confusing stuff. So it's easier that we just stop at Romans 8 and they're like, Hallelujah, God has done this for us. But the problem is, without Romans 9, 10, and 11, you don't actually have a foundation. Because here is the big issue. If God's promises have failed for the Jews, how can you believe that they're going to succeed for you, the Gentiles? And that's the question that we're going to come to here in chapter 9. Is okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. So we've gone through all eight chapters. But I still have a question, speaking, but if I'm speaking as a Jew. But didn't, are you saying that God failed? Like the Jewish people, those people that he chose, right? He called Israel out of Egypt. He chose them to be his people. He talked about. I will be your God, you will be my people, all the covenants, all the patriarchs, sons and daughters of Abraham, children of promise. Did it fail? Because 
as we're going to see, and as you know, not every Jew is a believer. So what was all that about? And again, for us, because you might be thinking, okay, well, I'm not Jewish. That doesn't affect me. Here's the truth. Over and over again, we see this pattern in the Bible to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Why is that? Because God's people first were Jewish. And then the Gentiles got brought into the family. And the importance now for you and me is if for the Jews it's not true, if he has failed in his promises to them, there's no way we can trust him in his promises for us. Okay? So we're going to see in Romans 9 that God's word has and will not fail. Opposed to what we now see in the Jewish people. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us, that we would behold you, uh, Lord, that you would make us small so that you could be big. Lord, this is a hard text. These are hard things to cover. These are hard things to wrap our minds around. Father, I pray that you would make us okay with mystery. You would make us okay with being uh, finite and not understanding sometimes. And as we do that, Lord, that we would see the greatness of who you are and what you've done. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So <clears throat> let's, let's start in Romans 9. Um, in uh, verse 1, we're going to read verse 1, um, 1 through 5 to start with here. So he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms, or my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were, cut, were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here, after giving all one through eight of chapters, uh, chapters in Romans, he now comes to this point in time where he has to come to terms with this fact. There are family members, there are people in his church who are never going to know the benefits of knowing Christ. There is a weight on him. You l listen to, to the words. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. What things in your life bring great sorrow and unceasing anguish for you? Is it that people in your life may never know the benefits of knowing? 
Does that weigh on you? Does that bring sorrow? And not only does it bring those things, Paul even goes to a further degree here. And in verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers. You realize what he's saying? He's saying, instead of them being cursed, I want to take their curse so that they can know the benefits that I know. I want to be condemned so that they don't have to be condemned. So that they can know the joy of walking with Christ. I want to be cut off for the sake of my brothers. Do you feel that for the people that don't know Jesus in your life? You see, Paul starts this section not from some ivory tower, because we're about to go into some hard teaching here. And before he goes into it, he's trying to help you and me and any readers understand this. That I hate what I'm about to have to share with you. It breaks his heart. He is in anguish over it. Paul knows the great benefits and joys of being in Christ and all the things that he just outlined in Romans 8. All the things that he just went through for eight chapters. The beauty of what you and I get apart. I'm sorry, not apart, but together with Christ. Forgiven sin. Justified. Walking with a holy God. Filled with the Spirit of God. Adopted as sons and daughters. Free from the power of sin and death. And the joy of being his. He knows, and he deeply wished his brothers could know. But he knows that there are many of his own Jewish brothers who will never know. You see, he continues on in verse 4 or 5, and uh, just 4 and 5 here, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong. Now he gives a list here. This is what I was just talking about. Paul says, all of these things are given to them, and yet, having all of these things, they still can't see Christ. They still can't see that he's the Messiah. They still can't see that that's who it all points to. He says they've been given adoption. We know this from Exodus. They've been called out to be his people. They've been given the glory. That glory has literally come down from heaven in their presence on the tabernacle, on the temple. They've been given the covenants. We have the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all the covenants that God has made with them. They've been given the law, how to live the best way to live. They've been given worship, promises, the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. And more than any of that, Christ was one of them, a Jew. And so more than any of us in this room who are not Jewish, they could relate to him as a Jew. 
and yet they still couldn't see it. And given all of it. And then Paul in verse 6 goes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed just because many have not come. It hasn't failed because of this. How do we know that? Because God has saved those he planned to save in Israel and now in the Gentile world. How does Paul choose to build his argument for this? Well, first we see that Paul chooses to build his argument for this with two different sets of brothers. So we're going to go a little bit of some history here in the Old Testament. Two brothers, Isaac, and do you know the brother of Isaac? Starts with an I, I too. Wait. You know the brother of Isaac? Ishmael. Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael, Okay. So, um, you can also look at the text. It's right there in the text. That would probably have been an easy giveaway. Uh, So, let's start with verse um, 7 here. He says, uh, well, sorry, let's step back just to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. So pause here for a second. We have two brothers first. They only mention Isaac here, but Ishmael is the other one. When they were, when Isaac was born, right, Isaac became the one who was chosen, right? It was Isaac who got the promise. It wasn't Ishmael. Now, what you might not know is that Ishmael was born of a slave woman in Hagar. And so you might look at that situation and go, well, of course, they weren't chosen as the person of promise. It would have been obviously Isaac, born of his wife. Right? Now, you might think that, and so this argument may fall apart for you for a second, that, well... How could God choose Isaac over Ishmael? And you might come to a point where you think, well, because he was a child of promise, he chooses Isaac. And when I say child of promise, meaning like my blessings, my promises, my covenants are going to continue through his lineage. That's what I mean by child of promise. And the the other side saying the child of the flesh So you see that in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise as counted as offspring. And then we see after that, it mentions two more brothers in uh, chapter, or not chapter, but verse 9. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now Paul is stating that not all who are descendants of Abraham are true Israel. Now this this would have been jarring to them because if you are a descendant of Abraham, of course, you're his offspring. Therefore, you're good. You're saved as a lineage of Abraham because physically you're an offspring. 
And you should, so you see right here already we have a problem, right? So if they're the offspring and the promise to Abraham was that his family would multiply and that the Lord promised to bless him and that his family would be a blessing to the nations. Okay, but what about all the family members that didn't put faith in Jesus? What happens to them? Did something fail? So there is unrighteousness or injustice, or is there unrighteousness or injustice on God's part for choosing Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau? Because as it says in the text, it says, I chose them before that, for Jacob and Esau, I chose them before they were even born. Which means this, they didn't do anything, they didn't earn anything, they had no good or bad position. All he did was said, I choose Jacob. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, if you're like me, you go, well, that's not fair. Why does he choose Jacob and not Esau? They didn't do anything to deserve it. They didn't do anything to, to not deserve it. Right? Why, why choose one or the other? And that's the point that Paul is trying to start to build here is that by choosing Jacob over Esau or by choosing Isaac over Ishmael, that there may be some kind of unrighteousness or injustice about God's part in this choosing. This doctrine that we're starting to unfold here is called election. What Romans 9 is trying to help us to understand is who are God's elect? Because God has sovereignly chosen. When I mean sovereignly, I mean sovereignly he has control, right? Sovereign meaning control, power over all things. And if you start to say, well, actually, we choose whether or not we're going to choose God, whether we're not. Yes, that is true. You choose. But in the scope of the Bible, it's actually a choice under God's sovereign umbrella. And like I said to begin this, I know this is, this is going to be hard and it's going to be maybe confusing. But I'm hopefully by the end of this, you can understand the mystery of election and why Romans 9 is so important. So when you think of election, I want you to think of two different things. God chooses who will believe and undeservingly be saved in spite of their sin. God chooses who will believe and undeservingly be saved in spite of their sin. Also, God decides who will rebel and deservingly be lost because of their sin. Now, you may be thinking at this time, again, well, that's not fair. Or how could God do that? Or if you're not thinking that, you may not be paying attention or you might not be understanding the argument completely yet. So look at verse 14. It says to this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul goes, by no means. God is just in his decision. Okay, so Paul's addressing a fair and normal question. Is God unjust? Because of those who choose, he chooses to love and those he chooses to hate. Is God unjust because he has chosen those he will love and those he will hate?
And who he chooses to hate is based, and who he chooses to love is based on no works, goodness, or badness of that person. The answer is yes. And look at at, um, verse 15 here. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, God here says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. The scripture says about Pharaoh, again, goes back to Exodus here. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whoever whoever he wills. So if you know the story of Pharaoh, right? That Pharaoh hardened his heart. God and Pharaoh in tandem hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what this passage is saying is, well, okay, is that fair? That he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, maybe because Pharaoh was choosing that as well. But he could have not, right? He could have brought Pharaoh to repentance if he wanted to. He could have brought Pharaoh to the decision that I'm going to put aside what I believe and acknowledge God. And he didn't. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, God's freedom in this passage, Paul is saying that God has freedom to have mercy and compassion on some and harden others and give justice to others. You see, in verse 18, like it just said, you you could almost see it as God's freedom, mercy and justice. And in the mercy line, you could see Moses, Jacob, Isaac, children of promise. And in the justice line, you could see Pharaoh, Esau, Ishmael, children of the flesh. And there is nothing about any of those people that actually deserves to separate them other than God looked on them and said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to hate you. I'm going to show you compassion and mercy and I'm going to not. I'm going to show you justice and wrath. So verse 19 then says, okay, but if God has decided mercy and hardening, how could he find fault with anyone? Right? So you may ask this question. So hold on. So what you're saying is God has already decided in his sovereign plan those on whom he will love and those on whom he will place his wrath. How is that fair? How could he find fault in me if he's chosen that in me? And this is where the idea of responsibility and sovereignty come into So we look at verse 19, it says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But you who are, sorry, but you who are, sorry, you who are you, oh man, to answer back to God, will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for dishonorable use and for another honorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath, has made known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So this potter and clay illustration, what he's trying to say is, we all are the clay. And as God is shaping us to be used, it would be like a cup saying to its potter, why did you not put a handle on me? Because you weren't supposed to be a coffee cup. I've made you for a different purpose. And again, like I prayed at the very beginning, the hard part about this for us is that our mind and God's mind seem to be at this level. We think that we can understand the decisions and actions of God as the clay. As the one that's just a lump of clay. We're not the potter. We don't make choices based on what our use or where we are going or going to believe. The potter shapes those lumps. And like it says, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And he says two reasons why. Showing his wrath to make known his power. And pause, because that's, that's a hard statement. That he has created some as he pours out his wrath to show his power. But... He has also made known the riches of his glory for some to which he's going to show mercy. And if you're sitting wondering or having a hard time thinking like, how in the world is that okay? Here's what you need to understand. What should blow your mind is that any of us get to be honorable use. That any of you in this room get mercy. That any of you get grace. We could get so caught up on the other side. Like, how is that fair that some people that I don't, that doesn't make any sense. It should be just as confusing that in here it says, some are going to receive mercy and grace. And if that's you and me, that should blow you away tonight. That God, because of nothing that you have done, Nothing about who you are, how many times you've read your Bible, how many times you've been to church, whether you've grown up in a Christian family, all the great spiritual accolades that you have, not for any of that. He just looked at you and decided, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to pour my grace and mercy out on you. Isaiah has two passages about this potter and clay thing. This question of why have you made me this way? Isaiah 29, 16 says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to his maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say to him who formed it. He has no understanding. Who are we to look at God and say, you don't have understanding. You don't have wisdom. You don't have knowledge. Isaiah 45, 9 also says, Woe to him who strives with him, to, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. 
Does clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. I just talked about this, right? So let's continue on in verse 22 and 23. Why then does God pour wrath on creation or why does he find fault? He has an aim. We talked about the enduring in order to make known the riches of his glory from vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That in order to, a lot of that has not even been shown yet. It's to show his glory and his purposes. Why did he choose to do it this way? I don't know. Why did he choose some of us and not others? I don't know. Why do I get grace and someone in my family does not? I don't know. But here's what I do know. What a precious humbling gift to have been given grace. To be loved by God for nothing that you've done. The ESV Study Bible says God created a world in which both his wrath and his mercy would be displayed. Indeed, his mercy shines against the backdrop of his just wrath, showing thereby that the salvation of any person is due to the marvelous grace and love of God. Like I said, if it's difficult for us to understand, it's because people mistakenly think God owes you salvation. And he doesn't. What he owes to you and to me is justice and wrath. Um, I want to read a quote for y'all real quick from um, a guy named Martin Lawrence Jones. Maybe you've heard of him before, but he says this about this point. We all want to ask at this point, why and how does God decide to make one unto honor and one to dishonor? There is only one answer for that. I don't know. Nobody else does. I cannot go beyond the scripture, and all the scripture tells me is that God does that and that he has the right to do it, and that if I raise the question, I am trying to contend with my maker. So let me put the teaching to you like this. If anyone is saved, it is entirely because of the mercy and choice of God. But I add this, if people are lost, it is entirely their own responsibility. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, and if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. Notice the distinction. Blame is theirs, but the credit is God's. This mystery, which our present knowledge cannot solve, it is consistent with scripture, history, and experience. This is what scripture teaches. The election that we've been talking about is central to our faith in the good news of the gospel, which I hope you hear tonight. If you were to decide that some choose to follow and others do not, then someone may ask, how did they make those choices? So this is an argument, right? I'm going to put this forward. Well, if someone just decided to follow or not to follow, how did they make that choice? And you may say, well, I guess the one that chose to follow had the eyes to see or they had the perspective. Okay, well, where did they get that perspective or the eyes to see? 
Well, I guess they had virtue inside of them, or something in them gave them the ability to do that. Okay, what is that thing in them that gave them the ability to do that? Well, I guess they were just better. What's the issue now? Now we're talking about workspace justification, workspace salvation. That this individual was just better than this one. Because something in them was good and something in them was bad. And we know that we've studied the book of Romans. This is not true. No one is righteous. Not even one. So you see that uh, this idea of election, this idea of what we've been talking about, it's the only way to understand the grace of God and salvation. Romans has already said it. No one is righteous. No, not one. Everyone falls short. And then he ends with verse 25 through 29. Paul further doubles down on defending God with two references to the Old Testament. Both give further evidence that Israel's failure and his choice of the Gentiles, this was prophesied. Hosea says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And then again in Isaiah concerning Israel, he says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Key. Only a remnant will be saved. God's promises have not failed. I am still saving a remnant of my people, Israel. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. It should absolutely blow us away that God has set his love on us. That God has looked at you, a dirty, filthy, disgusting, unlovable, and rebellious sinner, and says, I'm loved. If you know Christ, it is only by his grace. You did nothing to gain or change his choice to make you his. To be loved by an eternal father is grace upon grace. This passage of Romans 9 reminds us that his promise to the Jews has not failed. But like verse 27 says, a remnant will be saved. The true Israel will inherit the promises all that we talked about. He will be faithful, which means the house will be firm and unshakable. The beautiful truths will be things you can hold on to. I want to end with a quote uh, by John Newton about <clears throat> this idea of the doctrine uh, of election. He says, the doctrine of election and perseverance are comfortable. So they cut off all pretense of boasting and self-dependence when they are truly received in the heart and therefore tend to exalt the Savior. Of course, they stain the pride of all human glory and leave us nothing to glory in but the Lord. The more we are convinced of our utter sinfulness and inability to, from the first to last, save ourselves, the more excellent will Jesus we can trust in the promises of God because he has chosen in his grace from all the same wicked sinners, those he will and will not save. So if you are a believer in here, if you know Christ, if he is yours and you are walking in relationship with the living God, I want you to remember how much grace 
None of that was given to you because you deserve it. And you know the great news about that? That means it can never be taken from you either. Because you did nothing to gain it. It means you can do nothing to lose it. That God has called you his, his beloved, his child. And he has set his heart on you. And I want to encourage you, like Paul's heart at the very beginning of this, I pray that my heart and your heart breaks for the people around us who don't know that love. And it would encourage us to go out and tell people. Tell them about the grace of God. And here's the beauty. If God has set his love on them, it doesn't matter what you say or how you say it or how persuasive you are in it. If he has called them, your message will hit. That should give you confidence in all your conversations. Let's pray.